So go ahead and open in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, we are continuing our series through the book of 1 Kings, and we have now reached a dude named Jeroboam who's in charge of the northern kingdom. The kingdom has just been split in two. Rehoboam took Judah in the south, and Jeroboam is taking Israel to the north, the ten tribes of the north. And so 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 25. And so if you're new to the Bible, go to the table of contents. It'll help you find 1 Kings and 12, the chapter, is the big number on the page. Verse is the small number on the page. So 12, 25. While you're turning there, many of you know um, that I am, I love si- road cycling and, uh, um, and I just, I love road bikes. So if, I just want to just take a second to encourage you to get a road bike and then come join me and we can go have fun together. So I, uh, uh, I love road cycling, uh, but it's coming, it's getting colder. And so when you're on a bike going 20 miles an hour, it's like, it is, it gets cold. Uh, the wind, you got the wind coming at you. And so, especially coming into this part of the year, uh, you need some better gear. So I decided I'm going to get some arm warmers. So uh, they're like fleece, just like arm, arm sleeves is what they are. So I was, I, was, well, I was measuring my arm. I got a tape measure, and I was like, okay, I'm going to measure my arm. And so I've got it lined out, got the tape measure from my wrist to my up here somewhere, and uh, measuring it because they come in different sizes. You want to get the right one. And so measuring like that, measuring my arm, and then I measured like around, like diameter-wise or circumference, whatever the math thing is there, going around my arm. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I need help. So I get Dara to help me and she gets the tape measure and starts to measure my arm for me. And so we get the measurements and I look at REI.com at the, at the chart, uh, the size chart. And so she gets my size, tells me the inches and I look at the chart and I see extra small. And I was like, no, do it again. And so she measures, measures again, measuring my arm and the chart was, the chart had me that low. I don't view myself as a small person, okay? I don't, like, I'm, I'm just, I, I view myself as like a, 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 you know, a dude you don't want to mess with. And uh, the size chart told me, told me different. Uh, <laughs> turned, I needed a medium. I went to try them on. I ended up getting a medium. But anyways, why do I tell you that? Because sometimes, sometimes <laughs> how you view the world is a little distorted from your perspective. Sometimes how you view the world is a little distorted. Your perspective is a little distorted from what's really happening out there. And so for me, I don't view myself as a small person, but the size chart told me, yo, you're a small person. And for, the, for what we're gonna see in this text today is a man named Jeroboam who ascended to power, who ascended to power, but then his fears distorted his belief in God, and that led him to disaster. His fears distorted his belief in God, and that led him to disaster. Sometimes how you view the world is distorted, and you need some other lens through which to see it. And so that's what we're going to see today here in 1 Kings. And so go ahead and look at verse 25 with me. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And lived there. And from there he went out and built Penuel. And so, Father, we come before you. 
And we just thank you for your word. And so we stop to acknowledge our need for you to speak to us today. And so I pray that you open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So context here, if you are uh, missed the past couple of weeks, or if you just don't remember, the kingdom has just divided into two. So you got the northern ten tribes are following Jeroboam, the southern tribe of Judah, plus a couple other groups of people, are sticking with Rehoboam, the, the, the grandson of King David. And so the kingdom's just, 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 just divided. And I want to give you a reminder. So turn back to chapter 11, verse 37. Just as a quick reminder for you, God gave the new Israel king, Jeroboam, a promise. And I want you to hear it before we dig into this text today. Verse 37 of chapter 11, I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over Israel. This is to Jeroboam. After that, if you obey all I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. And catch this. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David, and I will give you Israel. That was a direct promise to Jeroboam. And so now, with that in your mind, I want you to turn back over to chapter 12, verse 25. So Jeroboam is now in charge of that kingdom. It is, he has seen it fulfilled. God has given him the role of king. And so now he is there and he's building his new capital city in Shechem, a northern town. He's like, this place is my new capital on the, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he, he lived there. And then he started building out another city. But just as we saw last week with Rehoboam, what was something that was happening in Rehoboam's heart as he was trying to figure out how to answer the people when they came and asked him for mercy or for grace. What was happening with him? Insecurities. He was unsure about how to answer these people, and so he chose the big stick over the carrot, and it, and it lost him the kingdom. And so for this guy, he's another new leader. And so he's, he's building out this city. He's got this kingdom, but what's happening in the back of his mind? A lot. Fear. He's insecure about his kingdom. He's insecure about his kingdom. And here is what he's scared about. Look what it says in verse 26. Jeroboam said to himself, the kingdom might now return to the house of David. So he's, he's the dude in charge, but constantly in his, in his head he's saying, is this thing stable? Is this thing going to hold together? Do I have backing to hold me in power here, to hold all the rest of these tribes together? Like, is this thing going to roll in the direction I want it to go? And so he's got this fear playing over and over in his head of like, oh no, these people are going to leave me. They're not going to remain here. I'm going to lose them. I'm going to lose my kingdom. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. And so he's got these fears playing. But then look what he says. (laughs) This is playing into these fears is this history of his people. 
that is going to bring problems for him. Look what he says in verse 27. If these people regularly go offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to the king of Judah. So he's got the fear, this thing's going to fall apart. I can't hold it together. And playing into that fear is the, is the fact that the Jewish religion is the central component of the Jewish makeup. Like their religion, the, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, their shared history, their shared heritage, the main component that brings them together is their shared religion. But the problem of that for Jeroboam is that the central place of Jewish expression and worship is in Jerusalem, this, the neighboring southern country. Like, that's, that's where it's at. And so he says, in order for my people to live out their faith, the thing that binds us together as a people, in order for them to live that out as God commands, they have to leave my country, go back to the old country, and worship there. And if I allow them to do that, then what's going to happen? They're going to go back. They're going to re- start to think, oh man, that old southern kingdom was good. Rehoboam was good. We're going to bolt. We're leaving Jeroboam. We're going to go back to Rehoboam. And then when he puts up a fight, we'll kill him, and then we'll all go back. And that's just playing over in his head over and over and over, trying to figure out, how do I fix this situation? How do I handle this? This is a problem for him in his mind. This is a real problem for him, at least in his mind. And so, was it saying verse 28? The king sought advice. The king sought advice. Now, let me ask you a question. Back up real quick. Does the text indicate, at least up until this point, that there's an actual threat of this occurring? No. At least up until this point, the text does not tell us. I'm not saying that some random bozo could have like hinted at it at some point in his life. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. The text does not say anything that there was a revolt, like some kind of rebellion occurring in his midst. It just says, no, this is a problem that he made up in his mind, and he allowed his fears then to deteriorate his, like what he was thinking about his people. So he sought advice. He's seeking advice for how to handle a situation that hasn't shown itself to be a problem yet. And so he's trying to fix the hypothetical problem. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. Uh, I'm just like playing through a conversation in my mind over and over and over again, or playing through a scenario in my mind over and over again. Like, how would I handle this situation? Well, what if this variable enters into the equation? Okay, well, then how will I handle that? And like, I start working myself up of like, oh, how am I going to handle this? Like, what, what's going to happen here? And how am I going to ha- handle that conversation? And then like later on, I uh, have a conversation with a person I was worried about, and it was totally fine. And that scenario never played itself out, but I'd work myself up about it. Uh, and so it just was like, ended up being fine. It's totally fine. It wasn't a problem to begin with, but I made it one in my mind. <laughs> We've all done that. And that's what he's doing here, except he's the guy who's got the nukes. Like he can push the button and do something about it. And so it's a, it's a big issue for this guy. But, but let me tell you what his fears did. Because 
when he's insecure and he's allowing his fears to govern, like, what he thinks about, like, his situation, what do you do at that point? You then begin to lead with those fears. You lead by those things. And so what does he say? Verse 27, if these people go regularly to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. Then they'll kill me and go back. Let me spell out what he just said. If I allow my people to obey God and worship Him where He said He should be worshiped, then God will not uphold His promise to me. Isn't that a crazy thought? Like, like we just spelled out what He just said. If I allow people to worship God as He said He wants to be worshiped, He will not like, fulfill his promise to me. And for us, we think, wow, that is a ridiculous statement. Like, that's a really dumb thing to think about. And I don't think he, like, thought of, like, spelled it out in that manner. He's sitting here thinking, if I let the people obey God, then God will smite me. Like, he's not thinking that, but his actions implicitly demonstrate that. That's what his actions are proving. Now, here's, 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 what's, here's where it hits home to me, and I'm sure to many of us in this room, is that he allowed his fears to govern how he thought. For him at this moment, or to where at this moment, that idea of if I allow the people to obey God, then God won't fulfill his promise to me, his fears distorted his thinking to where that was reasonable. His fears distorted his thinking to where that thought was reasonable to him. And like, here's the principle here, is that fear distorts our belief in Christ. Fear distorts our belief in and Christ. Because for Jeroboam, his fears dictated that he could not and should not obey the direct commands of God. His fear said, I cannot let the people worship God as God commanded us because they'll leave me. If I step out and try to allow them to follow God, it's not going to go well for me. And so, therefore, I need to put something in place to prevent them from obeying God. Fear distorts your belief in God. It does. And so, just take a step out of, Jer out of Jeroboam's uh, perspective. Like, like, we understand, like, this thing is really dumb. Like, it's a terrible idea. But in that moment, it sounded reasonable. And so look what he does. Verse 28, he sought advice, and then he made two golden calves, and he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and put the other in Dan. 
So he, the text is spelling out a couple things that he did here uh, out of his fears. So he was leading the people by fear because he was insecure, and, uh, and so he was distorting his faith in God. And so what did he do? He first manipulated his nation. His fear led him to manipulate the nation, number one. And so look what he, said, look what he did. He came to them, and he said, listen, Going to Jerusalem, making that, tr- that, that trip down to Jerusalem, the however many miles, 30 miles it is, 50 miles it is, 100 miles, that's too difficult for you. It's too difficult for you. I want to help you. I want to give you something that's easier, something that's more accessible. And so what am I going to do? Boom. We are making new gods for you. This is the God. So he's, it's, he's manipulating the nation. And then what did he do with it? He said, I'll make you new gods. It'll be the same one that you've been worshiping the whole time, but they're just new, and they're here, and they're pretty. And he made two golden calves, and he sets up one in Bethel and one in Dan, the two new centers of worship. And he, he made them two cities. Why? Because that's even more accessible. If there's, if, why worship and travel down to Jerusalem and go worship down there if... Like, why, why go all the way down to Waco and worship God down there when I can, set up, I can set up a temple here in Alito? Like, which would you rather go to? Would you rather drive all the way down to Waco or just drive 15 minutes to Alito? And there's the same thing happening over there. Well, many of us are like, well, I mean, it's closer. I'll just go to Alito. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to set this up to keep people in his little grasp, to keep all of his people here in his little home so that way they can't leave. He's making it convenient. And so, <laughs> verse 30 is kind of funny because look at verse 30 with me. This led to sin, clearly. It clearly led to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. And so what you can see here is he is returning them back to the infamous day back in the wilderness when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law from God. And while he's up there, Aaron, number two in command, fashions two golden calves for the people to worship directly violating the first two commands of God. You should have no other God before me. You should make no idols. The very thing that God said, number one and number two, don't do this. Oh, they're doing it right now. That's what's happening. And so Jeroboam is bringing that day back. He says, here's two calves for you guys. Worshiping God's too much for you. You need something more accessible, something you can see. Here they are. It's just right here in Alito. And so he said, not physically, you, you know what I'm saying. And so what, what this text is showing us is here's the trajectory of this new nation. What, would it, what did the promise of God say to Jeroboam? He said, I'm going to give you a kingdom, and if you obey me, I will set up a dynasty for you like I did for David. But here, first year on the job, here's the trajectory. It's pretty much a down, downward arrow. That's the trajectory of the nation there. So... Here's what verse 31 does. Go on to verse 31. At this point, the text is just kind of making a bullet point list 
of the dumb things that Jeroboam did at this point. So here's verse 31. So the first bad thing he did, made golden calves, just like, just like Aaron in the wilderness. That's kind of an infamous day. You know, don't do that. Well, he did it. Okay, number two, the second thing he did, verse 31, he also made shrines in the high places. And he made, uh, so, number, yeah, number two, made shrines in the high places. Do you remember from 1 Kings chapter 3, that's where, that's where Solomon was worshiping and God came to him and he said, you follow me, but you worship at the high places. Therefore, make my place in Jerusalem. Make the temple. And, and at the end of that text, we see, oh, he has moved worship from these various high places down to the temple in Jerusalem. Number, two, number three, I made, he made priests from the ranks of people who were not Levites. Numbers, chapter 3, says that when God saved people out of slavery in Egypt, what did he do? Who did he kill with the 10th plague? The firstborn, firstborn sons. But who did he save? All of those of Israel, the firstborn sons, who had the lamb's blood on the doorposts. And what did he say after doing that? He said, I have redeemed the firstborn of the Israelites. Therefore, all of them belong to me. But instead of taking everyone's firstborn son to be my people, to be my priests, he said, I'm going to take the Levites in their place. And so the Levites from that day forward became the priests of God. But here, what's happening is Jeroboam is making priests just from anyone. Anyone can be a priest in Jeroboam's religion. Number four, he made a festival in the eighth month and the 15th day of the uh, month, like a festival in Judah. He's making his own festivals up. Number five, he offered sacrifices on the altars in Dan and Bethel. Those are not authorized altars. He made this offering in Bethel to sacrifice the calves to the calves he had made. So he's sacrificing to those idols that he made. Number six, he chose his own month for his festival. Look at the text says at the end of that, in the end of verse 33. He chose this month on his own. And number seven, he made a festival for the Israelites, offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. So, the text gives this list for us of all the bad things that he does in order to make his own religion. Why is this a bad thing? Because what Jeroboam did, he was trying to recreate their own northern version of Judaism. But in effect, what he did was make their own new religion. Yeah, they have new gods, new festivals, new places of worship, new methods of worship, new priests. It's not Judaism anymore. He was trying to recreate it for his people to make it more accessible, but what he did was make an entirely new religion for them. That's what he did. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with all of that, is that God decides how he's worshiped. God decides how he's worshipped. Remember, there was a sermon we did, 1 Kings chapter 3. There was a point in it. When God appeared to Solomon, there was a, a, a point in which God said to Solomon, or, or in verse 3 of chapter 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord by walking in his statutes just like his dad David, but he worshipped at the high places. 
And the rest of that text is telling us that you cannot worship God any way you want. You can't come to Him in the manner that you want. You can't come to Him in the style you want. You can't come to Him through the means that you want. Like, that's not how it works. The point of that text was that God was centralizing all worship of Him at the temple in Jerusalem. You cannot go anywhere else and worship Him. It's only at the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because all these other places were just ripe for idolatry. But he says, I want all worship of me centralized at the temple in Jerusalem. That's the only authorized location. Through the means, the place that I've de- declared, the means that I've declared, the altar that I've declared, that I altar that he God cleaned, through the priests that he authorized, the Levites, the only way that they could worship God was through the means that he authorized. He chooses how he's worshiped because he's the one in charge. Not you, not me, not Jeroboam. And and the reality is, is, actually, this is exactly what we see in Jesus Christ, right? And that we cannot come to God any way we want. You cannot just say one day, you know what, God? I want you. We're done. Like, that's it. You cannot do that. What does John 14, 6 say? Jesus declared this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot attain God unless it's through the authorized means of God. And what does he say in John 14? Jesus is it. It's the same thing. In the Old Testament, God said it was the temple. And then what does Jesus come and do in John chapter 2? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. The people were confused because they thought he was talking about the real temple. But then he said, no. The text later says, no, no, no. He was talking about the temple, his body. And he was changing the paradigm. He says the, the central location of worship of God is no longer at that temple, but at this temple. You can only come to God in the means that he tells you you can come to him. And Jeroboam is bucking that. He says, no, we're going to do our own thing. And what God says is, okay, well, if you're going to do your own thing, then you're not getting me. You're getting something else. And so the question for us, go back to uh, first, if you turn the page, go back to First Kings uh, chapter, chapter 12. What is the call for you and me based out of this? Because what was the problem for Jeroboam? His fears, his anxiety, distorted his faith in God. So what is the call for you and me? The answer that it cannot be the right one is just don't have fears. Don't have anxiety. That's not legitimate. That's not a good answer. Because fear is natural. Fear is natural. And like, like that, that's just that the, it's not evil. Like that's just the way that it is. Like it can be a good system of expressing a need for caution. Like fear is a good thing at times. Not all the time, but it, but at times it's a good thing. And so to say we we just need to do away with all fear. No, not really. Like if there's a it's Halloween. If a guy shows up with a with a machete at your house, you kind of want to like be a little concerned about the situation. Like fear, all fear is not a bad deal, right? Instead, here is the call of this text 
for Jeroboam, what he should have done, and for you and me. It's not, don't be fearful. The call is, have your fears, but choose to be courageous anyway. That's the call of the text. That's the call here, is for courage to live out what you know Jesus commands in spite of your fears of what may result of it. That's the call of the text. When God calls us to live in a specific way, when he gives direct commands of obey me here, the call for you and the call for me is to be courageous enough to carry it out, regardless of how we fear it's going to turn out. That's the call of the text, because true courage, true courage is not the absence of fear. True courage is having fears and moving forward with it anyway. That's what courage is. And so for this, what courage is, is a real, a true demonstration of your very real and true faith in Jesus. Because if, some, if, you're, if God's Word is clear on something, one, that's, I, I, one that is very common right now, especially in our culture, and, and there's people in this room who struggle with this, and I'm aware of that. But in our culture, one area in which many of us um, shrink a little bit is with, re- with regard to LGBTQ issues. And I'm not saying be rude, but the Bible is very clear that, that homosexuality, homosexual acts are sinful. And right now, I'm feeling my heart beat really, really strongly because our culture has, has led us to believe, to be jammed, to think that if I say that, then I'm the bad person. And that if this sermon goes on the internet, then I'm going to get some mob come attack me. And I'm kind of nervous about it. But the Bible is clear on that. And so the call for you and me is to have the courage to be clear when the Bible is clear. That's the call. And you do that. The reason you would be clear on that is not to be a jerk. But the call for anyone and everyone in the world is to repent of sins and turn and trust Jesus Christ. That's what everyone in this room who claims to have faith in Jesus has done. If you have not repented of sin in your life, then you are not a real follower of Jesus because that's what his first thing he said. What does he say? He comes walking on the scene and he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. Repentance, turning away from your sin, is the first step in faith in Jesus. And so it's loving. It's loving to be clear when someone is walking in sinfulness. But it takes courage. As you and I well know, it takes courage. And that's not the only issue. It's an easy one because it's so prominent. Every TV show has two or three uh, gay people on it or every, uh, you know, it's just so prominent. But another one, another one, you got a friend. 
unmarried, in a very clear heterosexual relationship, living with one another. Like, the Bible is very clear. Like, society says, no, like, that's totally okay. You got to test things out. You got to figure out what's going on. Like, and, but like, the Bible is very clear on where is sex in its proper context. We, I was talking about this at Wednesday night uh, in our uh, small group, or life group, sorry, uh, on Wednesday night. And I was talking about this analogy of you've got fire, and in its proper context, it is a beautiful, life-giving, warm-giving thing. And that's sex in its proper context in the marriage of a man and a woman. But if you remove it from that context outside of a marriage between a man and a woman for life, what happens is it destroys everything. And the Bible's clear. Why? Because it wants us to live abundant lives. God is the wisest being in all of the world, in all of the universe. And he says, this is the way that I've designed you to live. And so, therefore, if you live this way, it will go well for you. And so, for us to be clear on when the Bible is clear, we are being people who are filled with love for other people because we're courageous enough to say, God designed us to live in this specific way. And if you'll do that, it will go well for you. And so that's the call for you and me, is to be people who are courageous enough to stand behind the Word of God, even when we're fearful for what will result. Even when we're fearful for what will result. And so for Jeroboam, how might it have turned out had he allowed his people to go to Jerusalem and said, no, you need to go there and worship God because that's what God commanded? I don't know. I really don't. But I know how it turned out when he didn't do that. I know how it turned out when he didn't do that, which is what we're going to see here in chapter 13. But I want to give you one more example real quick before I move on, because those are the two easy to kind of sexual ethics uh, are kind of a common uh, one to, to talk about with regard to sin because it's just so prominent. But, um, but another one is the courage to um, confess your own sin. It's not just calling out other people. Um, but we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, in our one about, we were talking about porn, and, and we talked about going to confess your sin to your spouse. And uh, some of us did that, some of us did not, and you felt like you needed to, but you put it off and you didn't do it. Um, but the Bible is very clear on, like, what does it say? Go and confess your sins to one another so you may be forgiven. That's part of repentance is sharing your sinfulness with another person and confessing it and getting it out in the open and not keeping it in the dark closet of your heart anymore. But that takes incredible courage. Why? Because you don't know how that'll turn out. But the Bible's clear. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be forgiven. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you need to do that. So it extends to more things than just the LGBTQ thing. I just wanted you to hear that. Um, but there is a call for courage. There is a call for courage. And so here's the question is how can we live like that? How can we live in a way to where we are courageous enough to stand behind the Word of God 
when we're uncertain about how it might turn out. It might get, kind of gives us a little bit of anxiety. Like, I don't want to speak into this issue, or I don't want to speak into this issue from my own heart because I don't know what's going to come out. I don't know how this is going to work out in my marriage. I don't know what exactly is going to happen here in this situation. I don't know. Here's, the, here's, the, here's how you can do that. Here's how you can live this out. And John chapter 16, I want you to read this. Go ahead and turn there with me. John chapter 16. It's in the New Testament, verse 33. Jesus is about to head to the cross, and he's telling his disciples, hey, that's about to happen. You're going to be sad for a while, but I'm going to send you a whole, the Holy Spirit to be your helper. He's going to come. He's going to guide you. In the aftermath of that, uh, you won't see me for a while. Then you'll see me again, and you'll get really happy about it. Um, but know that there are hard days coming. And in this, verse 33, he says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. What does he say here? Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So how can we be, as believers, courageous enough to stand behind the Word of God. It's because the one that we follow, Jesus Christ, has conquered the world. And so, therefore, what Paul wrote for us in Romans chapter 8 says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And here's the key thing is what can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be conquerors. We can be those who are courageous enough to stand behind the Word of God when it is very clear because Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, our Master, has conquered the world through his death and resurrection. And so now if we are bound with him, together with him, in union with him, through our faith, there is nothing that can come against us that can separate us from the love of God that we have in him. That is how we can do it. And so I want you to turn back. Chapter 13, we're going to read this. I won't say a lot about it, but I'm going to read it because I want you to see this. Because Jeroboam, he didn't live that out. He chose his own religion. 
chose manipulation. His fear distorted his trust in God. And so what happened? Judgment came, and it was told to him by a man of very real courage. And this is kind of the foil, the, the, not the r- aluminum thing, but, but the, a foil is a, is a person who's kind of like a, a counterpart. And, uh, and here's what he does. A man of God came, however, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. He was a southerner, still in Rehoboam's kingdom. He's a prophet, but he came up to Jeroboam. And uh, where was Jeroboam? He was at one of his fake altars burning incense to his fake God. And the man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David, the enemies to the south. A son will be born to that house named Josiah. And he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. These fake priests are going to be sacrificed on these fake altars because God is jealous. You are not going to uh, circumvent him. And he gave a sign that day, and he said, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart, and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. Catch this. This is awesome. When the king heard the message that the man of God had cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, arrest him. But the hand that he stretched out against him withered, and he could not pull it back to himself. Happy Halloween. Totally awesome. Then the altar ripped apart. And the ashes poured from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king responded to the man of God, plead for the favor of the Lord your God. Not my God, your God. Interesting. Interesting choice of words there. Plead for the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand will be restored to me. And so the man of God pleaded for the favor of the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it had been at first. Then the king declared to the man of God, come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. To king. He's got a lot of money. What's going to happen? I don't know. It's kind of exciting, you know. And, uh, but listen to this, verse 8. But the man of God replied, If you were to give me half of your house, I still wouldn't go with you. And I wouldn't eat food or drink water in this place, for this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not eat food or drink water or go back the way you came. And so he went another way and did not go back the way he had come to Bethel. He had a king saying, come with me, I'll give you a reward. And what did he do? He was able to display courage to the king of the nation because he knew what God commanded him to do. He said, it's going to go well for me if I obey God and I obey the word of God. And so he said, no, even if you give me half your house, I'm out. I'm not going with you. And here's the truth, is that you too can have this kind of resolve. 
in your faith. And you may have struggled this week. You may have had a couple moments where you're like, man, I just really blew that. Um, But you too can have this resolve through your faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has conquered the world. And there is now nothing that can separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus. And so you can hold on to that. You say, I can move forward with courage because God is with me. There's nothing that can remove me from his love. And here's the last question for you. So before you can have this kind of courage or resolve, you kind of also need to know what the Word of God says. So here's a question. Is are you reading and are you listening to the Word of God to know what He speaks in your given situation? And so as the band comes up, let's pray.